Hi everybody, Liam here. Welcome to another episode of East Bay Yesterday Q&A. You longtime listeners already know the deal, but I picked up a bunch of new listeners this week because of a lovely profile in the East Bay Times. So I'm going to explain the format of this week's show real quickly for the newbies. Normally, the show is a highly produced narrative podcast, but I also occasionally do straight-up Q&A style interviews, and this week is one of those. All right. Oh, and if you want to see that East Bay Times article all about why I make this show, there's a link to it in the media section of my website, eastbayyesterday.com. If you want to know about my upcoming events, sign up for my newsletter while you're there. Uh, the walking tours and boat tours that I do are currently sold out, but I'll be adding some more soon. Uh, one more thing before we get to the interview. Huge shout out to you Patreon supporters. I was just able to buy a new microphone, which I plan on using to do more uh, interviews outdoors. So yeah, you'll be hearing that mic in action very soon. And stay tuned until the end of the episode if you want to hear me give personal shout outs to each and every one of my newest Patreon funders. All those $3 and $5 donations are adding up, and that support is what allows me to focus on making East Bay yesterday. Okay, this week's Q&A is with Barnali Ghosh and Anarvan Chatterjee. About seven years ago, Barnali and Anarvan started the Berkeley South Asian Radical History Walking Tour, and they've been doing it twice a month ever since then. They don't just tell stories, they embody them. I mean, they really bring elements of immersive theater and group discussions and all kinds of interesting techniques into the tours that make them incredibly powerful. Anurvan grew up in the East Bay, and Barnali moved here from India about 20 years ago. And they're both really dedicated to sharing history as a form of community organizing. Stay tuned for the interview, and you'll hear what I mean. All right, EBY Q&A. Here we go. I'm here with Barnali Ghosh and Anurvan Chatterjee from the Berkeley South Asian Radical History Walking Tour. Before we kind of get into everything that the tour covers and your guys' personal history, let's clarify the terminology a little bit. When you say the South Asian Walking Tour, what countries are we referring to there? Yeah, so when um, we say South Asian, the stories we share on the tour are of folks with roots in South Asia. And that includes countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan, Myanmar. Um, That's generally the part of the world that you should be thinking about. On the website as well, it says, uh, I think it says something about 100 years of Desi history. Is what's the overlap between Desi and South Asian? Yeah, so uh, Desi is a term that um, some, not all South Asians, will use to refer to themselves. It's kind of, um, I've heard it to compare to like black at a time when African-American was kind of more in vogue or uh, La Raza. You know, it's it's sort of a a term chosen by the community, not all the community. But when folks see or hear the word Desi, they should just assume South Asian. One thing that's been 
happening in Berkeley a lot in recent years is these controversies over conservative speakers coming to campus who protesters know are going to spread messages of homophobia or racism. And, you know, we think of this as kind of like a modern dynamic, but this is actually something that's been going on for a very long time. And I think the earliest example of this that I've ever heard of is one that I found out from you guys where I think it was 1908, and there was South Asian students protesting a conservative speaker who was going to come to campus and say some bad things about them. Can you tell me a little bit about what what that story involved? So we look at it as as a mass mobilization because during that time in Berkeley, there were 17 South Asian students when the story takes place. And basically, there was a speaker who happened to be an evangelist who had spent a few years in India who was scheduled to speak at the YMCA, where House Pavilion stands today, so right in the middle, in the heart of Berkeley. Uh, You had the speaker who was going to basically give a lecture about how India needed to be saved. Um, Indians needed to be saved from themselves and list out all of the the, the deficiencies or the, the problems with the culture. And um, the, these students at Berkeley heard about, uh, he, in fact, he actually spoke in Stanford. And then the students at Berkeley heard about it from a couple of other Desi students who were at Stanford and decided that they had to basically challenge the speaker. And um, the students were led by an Indian student called Girindra Mukherjee, uh, who was the president of the Association of Oriental Students, uh, which included students from like China and Turkey. But basically, they showed up on the steps of Styles Hall and challenged the speaker, actually basically tried to have a conversation saying, could you not talk? about maybe like what's wrong with with Hinduism, for instance. And he refused, so the speaker went on to give a speech. The students occupied the front of the lecture hall. And once he was done, uh, they were actually kind of invited to rebut some of the things, which I think is also interesting. I don't see that happening today. Uh, Students are not necessarily given the same platform. Of course, I don't think they knew how forceful the students would be in challenging the speaker. So ultimately, only six of the students were allowed to speak before the organizers decided that they had to shut the event down. It was getting too too provocative, and there was too much truth being uh, spoken. But uh, to me, yes, it is one of the instances of... um, one of the earliest instances of students standing up for their free speech. And this is 50 years before the free speech movement itself. I went on your guys' walking tour, and I loved it. It's just an incredible experience, learned so much. And I don't want to give away, you know, all the stories, but one of the things I thought was really fascinating was where the tour started. And that was in front of the Pacific Center, which is a LGBT Q Community Center, longtime, you know, activist hub in Berkeley. And I was wondering if you can talk about why you start the tour there. Yeah, um, one of the reasons we uh, started the tour in front of the Pacific Center is because um, it was the site of a longtime Berkeley activist and a, a friend of ours named uh, Tinku Ali Ishtiak. And he was at the Pacific Center one day in uh, 1986, and he sees a sign where somebody else, another um, an Indian American gay activist, wants to just meet other South Asians. And he sees a sign, they get in touch, and Tinku ends up becoming one of the um, early founding cohort of a new organization called Tricone. And Tricone was the first 
South Asian LGBTQ organization anywhere in the world. I mean, obviously, South Asian LGBTQ people have always existed um, using just different kinds of identity terms or, or um, yeah. So Tinku and, and many others um, that were involved in Tricone in the early days, they actually started doing um, queer publishing in the Bay Area. And for us, that's actually that chance connection that happened at the Pacific Center. For us, it's a way of really not just highlighting um, how important it is for even like two people to find each other and connect and kind of the bigger things that can happen just from like two activists connecting, but really be able to talk about uh, LGBTQ history in the community, to talk about the power of, of zines, um, to really talk about all the ways that like how organizing begins. So another thing that I learned from you guys that I found just incredibly fascinating was that you know, Berkeley has this reputation um, from like the 60s and 70s, for example, as this kind of hub of leftist politics. But long before the 60s, there was anti-imperialist organizing happening on Berkeley's campus. And you talk about it on your tour. So can you tell me about the connection between, you know, these early liberation struggles on Berkeley's campus and the South Asian immigrant community here? Yeah, so when... um when we talk about Berkeley and the Cal campus, the first South Asian student arrived here in 1904. And by 1907, 1908 school year, there were 17 Indian students at, at Cal. And along with that, you had a parallel migration that was of farmers coming from the northern part of what is today Indian Pakistan from Punjab coming to the West Coast and about 2,000 folks living along the Pacific Coast. And the story of this anti-imperial organizing comes from the coming together of the students and farmers. And it comes from sort of the, in some ways, a disagreement about what their purpose was in coming to the U.S. So for the farmers, they were looking for a way to bring family over and eventually to become citizens of this country and make a new life for themselves here. So they were trying to kind of escape India at the time, which was controlled by the British Empire. Right. Correct. And especially, I think, in Punjab, there was, we don't talk about this as much on the tour, but there was uh, famine, there was food shortages. Uh, a lot of these folks were also in the British Army. So, you know, they had a complicated relationship to the British Empire, but they did see the U.S. Uh, and, and the West Coast, including Canada, as a place to really sort of start over. Whereas for the students, they were coming here to study all kinds of subjects similar to what we do today, agriculture, chemistry, engineering, all of those things. And their logic was that in order to get, for you, to, for the farmers to gain citizenship here, we actually had to take down the British Empire. Because one of the differences between South Asians and other Asian communities was that South Asians didn't have a government that could advocate for them. So the farmers would write like letters to the queen asking for advocacy on their behalf and would obviously get no response. So the farmers and the students sort of came together and took decided that as part of this um, diaspora community outside of, say, the eye of empire, because that was the first time students started coming to the U.S. and not going to, say, London for further education, that they would organize and organize an armed struggle that could take down the British back home and basically regain self-respect, regain their freedom. So this new organization um, that was founded in the early 1910s, it's, um, it's called the Gather Party. I think for us, there's something really interesting about um, looking back at the early Gather Party documents because they were, in addition to doing a lot of organizing, they're also doing a lot of writing. And I think for us, that's one of the 
the themes that we really tend to focus on, the power of uh, publishing and zines and, and creating independent media. And they were basically trying to create and build a movement of people that would organize here and then go back to India and overthrow the British Empire, right? That was kind of the end goal. Absolutely. And just the idea that um, the U.S. was this place where you, you could maybe safely organize a militant response to the British Empire. I mean, the U.S. was a nation that had actually gotten out of the th- under the thumb of the British Empire. So it was safer to organize here than by going to London, for example, although there were a lot of um, revolution-minded um, Indians or South Asians more broadly who were in places like the U.K., but you had to be a lot more underground there. So when the Gadar Party members, when the Gadarites were here in um, across the West Coast, including Berkeley, I mean, they were talking to socialists and anarchists and labor unions, the Wobblies, uh, the international workers of the world were essentially the only non-racist uh, labor union at the time. So a lot of Gadarites were talking to them. They were talking to academics. But they're also really talking to other colonized communities um, or people from colonized nations in diaspora. Um, including the Irish. So I think for us, um, that Indo-Irish um, revolutionary internationalist connection is one of our favorite discoveries as we've uh, researched the Gutter Party. I highly encourage anyone who's interested in what happened with the Gutter Party and the struggle to go on the Berkeley South Asian radical history walking tour, because I mean, the way the story unfolds, it's so intense and so powerful and so emotional. And uh, I'll leave it at that. I I really think, you know, it's up to people who are interested to kind of dig in this history. And and it's definitely worth checking out because this was an influential movement that I think had ripple effects far beyond the Bay Area and far beyond India as well. Switching gears a little bit, there was a wave of, let's say, um, fetishization maybe or cultural appropriation of Indian culture by a lot of people in the kind of hippie era. For example, white hippies adopting the music and the fashion and even the spirituality of, um, you know, people from South Asia. As radical historians, kind of how do you address that? Do you guys have thoughts that you want to share on, on that sort of chapter of Berkeley's history? For me, what's complicated about that is people thinking that they know who I am uh, or they know who our community is because... South Asian culture had such a big influence on hippies. Um, what I'm grateful for, I think, is is the music and art that came here, that it allowed a lot of uh, really well-known uh, dancers like Chitresh Das um, or Ali Akbar Khan, who set up a school in, in Marin. So it brought a lot of those folks here, and I'm really grateful for that because it gives us access today to a lot of that music. But I think it all sort of creates this idea that we're spiritual, we are nonviolent, we're passive, and uh, it doesn't really balance out all of these other experiences. And it still really makes it difficult when somebody on the street says namaste to you and thinks that they are connecting with you in some way, whereas I never grew up saying namaste. In fact, I speak a completely different language where we greet each other very differently. And because of colonialism, very often we actually say hi. Um, I I think for me, there's something about the image of South Asia or India in specific, where we're sort of the manic pixie dream culture of a certain generation of Berkeley. Um, Just the idea that we are magical beings that have some kind of like wisdom to impart. So some of that is irritating, but I think uh, for me, the the good thing that I kind of really get out of it is that uh, Berkeley has had 
a little bit uh, of a focus on um, the idea that uh, world cultures are interesting or important, that a certain kind of openness to people from other places. Uh, there might be a, a kind of a class thing there where some people might be more accepted than others. But still, I think on balance, it hasn't been terrible. And I think certainly for certain generations of um, South Asians, including uh, a lot of the artists that Bernali mentioned, it was actually an interesting way to kind of get into Berkeley and get involved in the culture. But that said, really, I think for us, the most interesting thing is um, all the ways that the South Asian students of the 60s and 70s were able to connect not through the hippie spirituality, but also kind of the the left movements of that time. So there's multiple threads of what was happening between um, in Berkeley. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Parnali, a minute ago, you were kind of talking about how obviously people from South Asia or Indian people or any any country, it's not monolithic, right? I mean, people are people, people are very diverse. So can you t- just tell me what are some of like the challenges of telling these stories to such diverse crowds of people? So I think we're very upfront about what our bias is. There's the word radical in the walking in the name of the walking tour. And when we started it, we had a pretty, you know, in-depth discussion about should we include it or not? Would it turn people off? Would it make people curious? And we felt that it was actually important to be upfront about the kind of stories we would be sharing. And so far we found that it actually makes people really curious because you don't often equate or think about South Asian and radical in the same sentence in Berkeley. And, and what does radical mean in the context of this tour? I think for us, it definitely means more that we're talking about, about, like radical in a sense means going to the root. So there's many meanings to the word radical for us. One is sort of go, trying to uncover our roots in the city, uh, but also that it is about organizing and it's not sort of a general history of South Asians in Berkeley or where you can find your favorite Indian food or any of that. Like we're very much talking about folks who were engaged in fighting for equity and justice. So that's what radical means for us. But it does have the advantage of meaning different things to different people. And it definitely makes people curious. So, So we are very upfront about sort of our point of view. The second thing, um, or one of the main ways, techniques that we use in conveying these these histories, I would say, is in the way we tell these stories. Uh, We try to tell them in a way that it's not like learning history in a classroom. It's not just facts and figures and dates where people don't have a chance to have an emotional connection with the characters we're talking about. Um, None of the characters that we talk about or the histories that we talk about are, are sort of pure in any form. We don't, uh, they're all sort of flawed in some way, but they're also beautiful. They're very sort of real histories of how organizing happens, and there are many lessons there for outsiders who might think of organizing just as protest uh, and may not be privy to sort of the nuances of organizing. So we try to present these histories in a way where people feel for these characters, where people go on a journey with these characters, where there's there's nuance, it's, it's complex, and there many, many layers. So we're thinking of it as almost educating folks in these histories and not making assumptions about how much they know. So we start, I think, pretty basic, but try to tell them in a way that people can connect um, to that character. I believe I remember you guys mentioning on the tour that at even at some point while you were giving the tour, somebody like just a random guy on the street came up and started challenging you or saying racist yeah. things. Can you t- remind me about what happened that time? 
maybe it was about a year ago when we were doing a tour for this cohort of Asian American young activists, actually. And at the end of the tour, we do kind of a share out. And uh, we had a young, uh, one of the young people who were part of that cohort sharing how they had experienced racism. And, you know, the tour is in public. So we do have people stopping by, listening to stories, sort of hearing in. And generally, it's been okay. But this one time, we had this older white gentleman um, who happened to be just walking his bike by, who stopped, listened to what the person had to say, and went on to say, if you don't like it, then why don't you just leave? And um, He picked the wrong crowd to say that to. He definitely <laughs> did, because, you know, I, I think, Folks immediately said, well, some of us were born here. What do you, what do you mean by leave? And um, unfortunately, I think things like this are powerful in a way for, for all of us. They're a reminder of the kind of world we live in. And we, we get comfortable as a community sometimes. You know, when we're walking in that group, all of us organizers together, it feels really powerful, but you're reminded that sort of a group of like Asian folks gathered in a street corner telling stories can be quite a threat to folks walking by. I think if I could add yeah. something, yeah. Yeah. I, I think for us, uh, with, with especially the post 9-11 um, hate incident story that we share, and also uh, we share now um, the hate incidents that happened post-Trump. It's really, I think, important for us for people to see a way out of it or to know how to respond. So the sharing of the stories is important. The gathering of the data is important. But what we're trying to do is also give people tools for how to respond to it collectively. So not just putting the stories out there, opening this box and having people walk away feeling either depressed or helpless. So both of the stories we share that are in response to the experience of hate incidents is a collective response. So, so how do you organize your community? What can you do as an individual to make sure that whenever these incidents come up that you know how to respond? Yeah, and it's, you know, I give walking tours as well in downtown Oakland generally, and um, it's a di very different kind of dynamic than you guys because I'm not focused on, um, you know, an ethnic identity in particular, but I feel like the format is so powerful because you never know what's going to happen. You're always having these interactions with people on the street, and it really does bring history to life when people are kind of in person engaging with social movements of the past or things that happened at a specific location because um, like seeing things and, and being able to like touch a building or you know stand where something important happened, it really makes what you're talking about feel so much more visceral. Yeah, I think that was definitely part of our conceptualizing of this tour. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, our histories are not celebrated in any way or visible in any way to people. And you know, for me, particularly as an immigrant, you always sort of question what where home is and you're always trying to understand at what point does this place that you've lived in now for 20 years for me uh, is this home or when I say home do I still mean back home and connecting these histories to places 
was so important because every time we want, like it does for me, every time I walk past these places, I'm reminded of these stories. And because of some of the theater tactics we use or the surprises or in the ways we share these stories, we try to make these sort of what we call temporal placemaking. So for a moment, we've created all of us together a really important place for our community. And uh, doing that, I think, changes the relationship of folks who are just walking by. So the next time they walk by, they can't just walk in downtown Berkeley and not think about the stories we shared and how often people do that and how connected and how entitled it might make them to thinking of Berkeley as, as their home, uh, too, I think for us is really important. Absolutely. And, spe and speaking of surprises, is there anything that you guys have found in your research that really surprised you that kind of jumped out? I would say for me, um, what I was really surprised by was the story I stumbled upon related to um, housing, uh, because housing is so much part of what we're discussing in, in the in the Bay Area today, uh, we're talking about redlining, we're talking about exclusion of communities from owning places. And um, w one thing I didn't expect to find was sort of the story of a family who had a shop in San Francisco, and this we're talking about in the early 1910s, and they wanted to live in Berkeley. And they bought a place somewhere in the Elmwood. We, do, we actually don't have the exact location. And you know, packed up their things, Vaishnadas um, Bagai, Kalabagai, maybe their kids, and they showed up to basically enter their house and were blocked by their neighbors. Blocked by their neighbors to such an extent that they had to turn back and they ended up continuing to live over their shop in San Francisco rather than move to Berkeley. And to me, that's a really powerful story about um, who got to live here, who got to claim ownership over this place, who gets to go to city council meetings and say that I've lived here for so many years, knowing that so many of our communities have been actively, physically excluded from owning things, not only at the border, um, the sort of the borders of the countries, but even within the borders of cities like Berkeley. Yeah, and given your historical knowledge of, you know, this long history of racial discrimination that is perpetrated by the majority on the quote-unquote minority, I'm wondering um, about your responses to some news I was just reading about this morning, which is that a new census data revealed that eight, there's more Asians or people who identify as, you know, ethnically Asian living in Alameda County now than white people. It's uh, just, the scales have just tipped, but it seems like things are definitely continuing to head in that direction. So with all the thinking you've done about this history, what does that tipping point mean to you now? So I guess we're approaching sort of a majority minority, but Asians aren't monolithic, and the Asian community in... Alameda County is quite, I think, varied. And there's everybody from folks who came here as refugees, who, you know, for whom English is not a first language, to techies um, from India, or folks like me who have some more privilege. So it's a very, very diverse community. And I think it's exciting to see more Asians, but I feel like for us as organizers within the Asian community, we also are getting prepared to take on some of the same, I guess, issues um, that we've seen between say, white folks and, and, 
minorities. So, so for us, I think the, the ethnicity or the commonality takes you only so far. And after that, it's really about what our values are, where those values come from. And unfortunately, we're seeing some of this in the way Asian communities are showing up to not have housing um, uh, for homeless folks in their community, for example. Uh, folks are getting more civically engaged, but unfortunately, it's also daylighting some of these schisms within the community related to class, related to caste, uh, related to sort of fear of the other, all of which are not necessarily American values. We have this back in our homeland as well, but definitely sort of falling in line with um, what we've seen previously. Last year, uh, I was really involved in a um, campaign in Fremont around uh, new sex ed curriculum um, in the schools. And it was this fascinating experience watching folks from the white Christian right and the Chinese American right kind of team up against sex ed in the schools, where we're really seeing different kinds of formations coming up. So Asians are as complicated and diverse and strange and weird and wonderful as anybody else. And there's, whether you're a Bhutanese refugee or you're an Indian American tech billionaire, uh, there's a wide range of difference. And I'm excited about all the different kinds of um, Asian American experiences we're going to be seeing in Alameda County today and in in the future. I I will say that I hope that the sort of increase in this population means that we learn our histories more, that they show up in schools, because I think a lot of the, the ways people respond to what's happening around them is because they are not always familiar with the sort of the systemic racism that happened within our communities, where if you didn't experience somebody being racist to you directly, you think it doesn't exist anymore. So we hope that this means that there will be more resources, both in terms of like language resources uh, from folks within the Asian American community that are a minority, like say the Hmong community or the, the Bhutanese refugee community, uh, or that in schools we will have access to more of sort of through ethnic studies, um, a telling of Asian American history as American history. Well, I hope more people will go on your walking tour because I know that a lot of the important local South Asian history, you're not going to find it in a school textbook anywhere. You know, you guys are really doing some critical original research, digging up these things that literally no one else is talking about and sharing them with uh, the South Asian community and a much broader community, all the folks that come on your tour. So um, where can people go to find out when the upcoming tours are and find out more information about you guys? We do two walking tours a month, almost every single month. Um, and you can learn about that at berkeleysouthasian.org. I was going to say, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Barnali, Anurvan, thank you so much for joining me today on East Bay Yesterday. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Liam. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday Q&A. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. Okay, this is pretty cool. Barnali and Anarvan have given me two sets of tickets to give away for their upcoming walking tours. I'll share the details about how you can get those in a newsletter that I'll be sending out tomorrow. So if you want to get the free tickets, go to eastbayyesterday.com, hit the subscribe button in the top right corner, and yeah, you guys know what to do. Okay, time for some personal shout outs. To the following people, I'm really, 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 really grateful for your support. Rosemary Alonzo, Craig Casebeer, Caroline Dickey, Christine and Elisa, 
Elena Colon Morero, Nancy M. Friedman, Peter Merholtz, Pam Uzel, Alex V, Javier Arbona, Renata Robles, Leif Hatlin, Judith Sanderson, Rachel Frank, Tara Thomas, Ali B, Ethan Lindsay, Matthew Letke, that's my cousin, Shannon Allaire, and Mark McDonald. This show would not exist without you. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Spotify and pretty much all the major podcast apps. And, you know, a lot of those podcast apps have a little share button. So if you like this episode, please send it along to, you know, some of your friends. That would be awesome. Music for this episode came from Tab and Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back very soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.